This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. You know, one of the perks and curses of this job is that I get to interview so many authors and so many uh, publishing companies send me books for review. I enjoy getting all of these books and I enjoy doing the research that is a part of hosting this program. Well, I say it's a curse as well because so often I, I love to just, I relish the idea of curling up with a book that I've chosen for no other reason than my own personal enjoyment. And sometimes I will go months with, uh, without that luxury. Uh, recently, a friend of mine said, I have a book you need to read. And she lent me this book and I thought, oh, well, ooh. I didn't say anything. She, she knows who I am and she thought I would appreciate it. So I took the book home and I thought, well, maybe I can read a couple of chapters and give it back to her and say it was very nice. What actually, the book just pulled me in and I thought, wait a minute, this is a common thread show. The book is entitled Nonviolence, The History of a Dangerous Idea. And it was written by Mark Kurlansky and has a foreword by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And as I say, it was a very impressive book. It was uh, one of those books that could rock your world if, uh, if you took it seriously. And I do, actually. Mark Kurlansky is the author, and we contacted him through his publisher. And we are very fortunate to have him here right now by way of the telephone from New York City. Mark Kurlansky is the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of The Last Fish Tale, The Fate of Atlantic and Survival in Gloucester, America's Oldest Fishing Port, and Most Original Town. The Big Oyster, History on the Half Shell, 1968, The Year That Rocked the World. Salt, A World History. Cod, A Biography of the Fish That Changed the World. Uh, the Basque History of the World, and several other books. He lives in New York. And uh, this book, Nonviolence, The History of a Dangerous Idea, won the Dayton Literary Peace Prize in 2007. And so we welcome to Common Threads, Mark Kurlansky. Hello, Mark. Hi, Fred. Uh, Mark, you are probably the most eclectic author that we've <laughs> ever had on this show. Um, you have a, a, a penchant for fish and for seafood. I can, I can uh, see that. But salt, a world history and um uh gloucester uh, it, it just <laughs> you you must uh, just decide uh, what do you do wake up uh, one day and go, i think i'll write about darjeeling tea right. how how do you find so many different things to write about well i don't know i i guess a lot of different things interest me and i have these ideas floating around and i usually sit on an idea for a few years before i uh commit myself to doing a book on it and I look for ideas that um, uh, that I think are important and that I think make good stories because I think a narrative is very important to a book 
I'm kind of at heart a storyteller. And and you are an author, from my understanding, from reading the bios on you. It's not like you are a leader in the nonviolence movement, am I correct? And you are not uh, at least officially affiliated with any particular spiritual uh, movement in nonviolence, am I correct in this? Uh, right on both. Uh, I'm not uh, <clears throat> affiliated with uh, um, any religious movements, really. I'm, I'm Jewish, and I show up in show every once in a while <laughs> and um, uh, although I am somewhat of an anti-war activist I'm not really affiliated with any organization I have actively opposed quite a few wars at this point <laughs> and, and how long would you say you've been on this particular trek of opposing war yes well um, since Vietnam? Since, since the Vietnam War, yes, which I was drafted for. Oh, and, really? And, and, and what happened there? Uh, I declined the invitation. <laughs> uh, I went to the induction center and did all the tests and somehow failed to fail in any of them. And uh, Like Arlo Guthrie? Kind of, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so I realized I was about to go into the service. This was in 1970 height of Vietnam War, and I uh, walked up to this very large man in a uniform who seemed to be in charge and said, listen, I think this war is completely immoral, and I refuse to participate. And he sort of looked down at me. I'm a fairly large man, but he was much larger. <laughs> he looked down at me with complete disdain and sort of rolled his eyes and said, conscientious objector, line three. And line three was very long and um, uh, I had a series of uh, I guess you would call them legal disputes with the military and the selective service system which lasted longer than the Vietnam War oh really yeah and and how was it finally resolved well it never really was shortly shortly before uh, the US withdrew from Vietnam I got this new draft status that I had never heard of and uh, really had no idea what it was for years and years. And, um, Tom Hayden, the peace activist, uh, sure. told me that he had gotten the same status and that he thought it was a special status they came up with for people who had made such a pain out of themselves they didn't want to bother with them anymore. I'm not sure if that's true. But, <laughs> But but you're saying this happened during the war, but and you say that after the war you still had to deal with certain issues. No, no. Once oh. once, once the U.S. pulled out, the, the the whole thing was just kind of was kind of dropped, and uh, I had intended to go to Canada. And you know, as as the years have gone by, in retrospect, I I, I regret that um, that I sort of used this legal process so well and didn't just take a stand and go to Canada because the kind of wrong thinking that was involved in that war has just, uh, you know, at the time I thought of it as, uh, you know, a problem of the times, but I now see it as something that's deeply embedded that you have to continually oppose. 
The title of your book, Nonviolence, The History of a Dangerous Idea, I'm thinking might be misleading to a couple of people. Um, Why is it a dangerous idea? Well, of course, I don't think it is a dangerous idea. I call it a dangerous idea because uh, people in power think of it as a dangerous. They feel very threatened by, by people who oppose violence because uh, they see violence um, as a tool at their command. Uh, in most societies, it is not permissible to kill other people unless the state tells you to do it. And this is the special privilege that states have. And people who want to take this away to state, from states are, are seen as very threatening to, uh, to um, government. If I could convince all the young men and women in the military to refuse to go to Afghanistan, which I would gladly do if I could, uh, I'm sure that Barack Obama would see me as a very threatening person. This is true. Now, even though you are not overly religious, you're not a- as active, say, in Judaism as many of the other guests we've had on Common Threads, you really... No, in fact, I have to tell you that <laughs> when I uh, had this uh, conscientious objector, um, when I had these hearings coming up, I was advised, because I'm not sure how old you are, but if you were around in the 60s, you may recall that there were lots of people who advised you about draft issues. <laughs> And I was advised that um, you had to take a stand on uh, on religious grounds. Right, and, I know and I that. Spent, I spent a lot of time talking to rabbis and trying to make this case. I had just graduated from college and was accustomed to academic pursuit at the time. <laughs> I tried to make this case that Judaism was a peace religion, um, which nobody bought. Yeah, could, you couldn't find any rabbis that would, would toe that line? Oh, I could. I could. I couldn't find anybody on my draft board who was conducting the hearing that bought it. Oh, yeah, that's... <laughs> There's the rub. You, you spend a great amount of time in your book talking about nonviolence from a religious... from several religious perspectives. So you certainly did your homework, uh, not, not simply on Judaism, but on Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, and I'd like to uh, focus a little bit on that. So, what do you, I think your conclusion is that many religions start with the greatest ideals of peace and nonviolence, but that somehow gets pushed to the back of the uh, philosophical bus. Is that a fair reading of what you say? Yeah, and, and it's very easy, if you look at history, to identify the moment when that happens. The moment when that happens is the moment that the religion gets involved with states. Um, so, so let's start with Christianity. No, 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 let's start with Judaism, uh, because you're Jewish. What, what did you find out? What did your investigation tell you about nonviolence and peace in the Jewish mind and, and in Jewish history? Well, in, you know, in, in, in Jewish history, Judaism has been traditionally quite nonviolent, uh, with the exception of the periods um, such as you know, before the uh, exile in 
you know, a thousand years ago and uh, since the creation of the state of Israel, when there has been a Jewish state, nonviolence has sort of been dropped as a notion. Or not entirely dropped, but, you know, Judaism is a very unhierarchical religion. There's nobody who speaks for it, so there's always a debate and argument over absolutely everything. But... Um, and do you think that there there are enough of the of the ancient rabbis who who spoke in favor of a nonviolent approach, a nonviolent resistance? Uh, yeah, I mean that that always has been a strain of of, of Judaism, and uh, of course Jesus, who was Jewish and was mainly concerned in his lifetime with uh, um, talking to Jews. Uh, picked up on that strain. Uh, his, his disciples, after he died, had this had a big debate, and uh, I think it was Paul who really pushed for um, breaking off into a separate religion. But you know, the, the original idea, Jesus's idea, was you know to um, um, reform Judaism to you know bring Judaism to certain values. And and you say that uh, this uh, was the main approach until Constantine made uh, Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire. Yeah, it's, you know, you could argue with the undoing of Christianity. <laughs> you know, Christianity for about 250 years was one of the most fervent uh, peace religions uh, in, in human history. Uh, these people rejected all violence, they rejected all participation in violence, they rejected participation in states because states were inherently violent. Uh, being a magistrate in a government was said to be an unchristian thing to do. And all this changed when Constantine... Um, Actually, it's a misunderstanding that originally he didn't adopt Christianity for the Roman Empire. He just uh, said it wasn't going to be persecuted anymore, that it would be acceptable. Um, and immediately started doing very strange things like going to war in the name of Jesus, which was a complete contradiction to Christianity as it was understood at the time. And uh, this is when the symbol of the cross um, uh, took hold, and, and not coincidentally, uh, somebody claimed that they had found the cross, and, uh, you know, the cross was an implement of, uh, of, of torture and, and violence, and, the, you know, the early Christians used a fish as a symbol. And then this cross was used as a symbol of war. It was, you know, put on flags and shields, and people went to, to war in the name of Jesus carrying this symbol. Um, and completely changed Christianity, except that, in fairness, there have always been groups of Christians who hearken back to the original sense of Christianity. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and joining me today is Mark Kurlansky, the author of Nonviolence, The History of a Dangerous Idea. In Christianity, or rather in, in ancient Rome then, uh, how was Constantine able to rally the troops, if you will, to get Christians to fight in the name of the Roman Empire? Well, originally, 
<clears throat> he didn't. Originally, he got non-Christians to fight in the name of Christianity, which is perhaps an even weirder contradiction. Uh, and, you know, for some time, uh, many Christians refused to fight. They refused to participate. Um, but, you know, as Christianity increasingly became associated with um, the existing power, um, the religion started changing, although, you know, there were always, and there always have been people who, um, you know, said, stop, this is not what Christianity is about. This is a lot of what the... Um, the monastic movement was about was uh, uh, monks who wanted to hold on to the original uh, meaning of Christianity and and not this power structure, which is probably the reason why monasteries are self-sufficient and the church doesn't support them. You know, when financially, I, when I look at say the the organized resistance of someone like a Martin Luther King and the other organized resistance and right now i'm speaking specifically of of christianity we could also we could also talk about the gandhian satyagraha movement as well uh but there is such a science to nonviolent resistance that i'm wondering was that around back then as well or did people who were nonviolent just get slaughtered with no with no strategy well you know, it's an idea, as I point out in my book, it's a very old idea that's been around for as long as warfare has. And, um, you know, more and more ideas of it amassed. And Gandhi um, was not really the inventor of anything, but um, pulled a lot of these ideas together uh, out of a number of traditions, uh, very influenced by Christianity, um, although he was a Hindu and he was interested in Jainism and Buddhism and he was interested in everything. And, uh, you know, he, he pulled a lot of things together that had been, you know, learned from, uh, from history. And, you know, was an extremely influential man in history and extremely, uh, important. Uh, I, I wrote an introduction to, uh, republication of Thomas Merton's uh, book on Gandhi in, in which I argue that he was the most influential man of the 20th century. Uh, since Gandhi, um, everybody, Martin Luther King included, uh, who has been interested in pursuing nonviolent resistance uh, has researched how Gandhi did it. Gandhi was, a, you know, influenced uh, um, the people in um, Central Europe who wanted to uh, overthrow the Soviet system. Uh, he's, you know, it's it's become the manual. Right, right. And and my my concern, not my my concern, my question is, it's it's fascinating how people like Gandhi and um, well. A lot of people think that nonviolence is just not fighting, but it's more than that. It's a strategy. It's it's the uh, passive resistance. It's non-cooperation. It, it's all of those things, 
And I'm just wondering if back in ancient times, th they strategized as much as people who are in the nonviolent movement today do. You know, do, well, you, do you we know, have some, examples? Some did and some, and, and some didn't. The medieval Cathars certainly did, although, you know, they're today not associated with nonviolence because in the end they abandoned it and went to war and were slaughtered. But you know, their original idea was was nonviolence, and, and, and they were very systematic about it. And um, there, there have, throughout history, been uh, systematic movements. But, um, you know, I, I, more and more ideas accrue through history. And, you know, one of the problems with nonviolence, one of the reasons why uh, it's often seems less appealing than violence to an oppressed people is that it takes a lot of imagination. Um, violence doesn't really take much imagination at all, but nonviolence, you have to look at the situation and, and, and come up with ways of, uh, of, of resisting. Um, uh, you know, Gandhi was brilliant at this. His, 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 his salt march you know, where he um, opposed the British law forbidding Indians to make their own salt with a march to the sea, which he invited all the major newspapers and everybody and photographers. And, uh, and it became this huge event, and he just marched to the Indian Ocean and picked up a clump of salt from the beach and held it over his head. Uh, thereby making salt and defying British law. It was all just symbolism, and it it, 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 it caught on. It really launched Indian independence without um, doing anyone any harm or attacking anyone or any violence. Um, um, uh, you know, all kinds of street theater. and uh, um, I mean, remember the Yippies. Uh, the, the Yippies had moments of nonviolent brilliance. Um, Abby Hoffman. Uh, uh, levitating the Pentagon? Levitating the Pentagon, yes. Yeah, where in the 1967 march on the Pentagon, uh, he told all of the press that he was not only going to levitate the Pentagon, but make it spin. And uh, because he was a sort of a charismatic character and the kind of person that television and media in general really likes because he's always good copy they kind of followed him on this and when the critical moment came of course the pentagon didn't levitate or spin and then they're going well mr hoffman what happened there and you know he was just laughing he got all of the major media to follow this and brought attention to the march <laughs> that was that was great street theater yeah, he was he was a character. Um, let's talk about we were talking about Gandhi. Let's talk about Hinduism and nonviolence as well. It's interesting that a lot of people just automatically think Hinduism is a nonviolent religion, but, but like Christianity, it has pockets of nonviolence. Uh, at the same time, it uh, you know India certainly has a standing army, and uh, you look at the. Um, uh, the stories of ancient India, the Mahabharata. Yeah, I, I would compare Hinduism, as far as nonviolence goes, more to Judaism than Christianity as a very ancient, complicated religion that has lots of different strains to it. Um, 
Christianity is actually, I think, more than any other major religion, is really truly rooted in nonviolence. Um, uh, Hinduism is, is, you know, Westerners think of it that way. Um, it's funny that Western Christians think of it that way without realizing that their own religion is actually much more rooted in nonviolence. And, and what's fascinating, too, is that Gandhi received so much of his inspiration from the Bhagavad Gita, which is a part of the Mahabharata, which is a war story. Yeah. Where Krishna is telling his disciple Arjuna to fight a war. Don't be a wuss. I mean, that's <laughs> a lot of people say that. That's the message of the Bhagavad Gita. Yeah, and and and, and there, there, there was a lot of machismo to Gandhi's thinking, uh, and a bit of sexism too. He didn't he didn't want women to uh, uh, demonstrate, and he, um, you know, Gandhi said that uh, if, if you don't know how to resist nonviolently, that you then you should resist violently. That the worst sin is to not resist right coward yeah he cowardice he he looked down upon cowardice uh, with with a very right. grave eye but this is a very interesting concept in 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 hinduism that that, that gandhi was very fascinating gandhi was very interested in in you know dietary restrictions and and you know in hinduism there's this idea you know that you shouldn't eat meat um because it's killing. Um, but it's also pointed out that eating vegetables is also killing, because vegetables have life, that actually everything has life, and that you know eating food is inherently a, a contradiction. Um, and that what this shows is that man is inherently imperfect. Uh, that perfection is not attainable because the perfect human being would starve to death. Right, right. Or, or that I, I have heard that some saints will live on fruit, where uh, theoretically eating fruit is not killing. You're eating the fruit of the tree, you're not killing the tree. Um, but, but, all right. <laughs> but but, but th there's, there's maybe five people in the world who do that. Right. <laughs> so... so. Listen, uh, Mark, we are down to the wire for uh, this uh, this portion of Common Threads, but I would like to invite you back next week, and we can continue talking about your book. Sure, that would be great. And real quick, you've got uh, a couple of books coming out? I do. I have um, two books coming out in May. One is a translation of an Emile Zola novel uh, called The Belly of Paris. It's a great great novel that takes place in the Laal market in Paris and is about it's about the relationship between food and social issues uh, wonderful wonderful book and um, uh, and the other book I have uh, that's Modern Library and the other book I have coming out from Riverhead is called The Food of a Younger Land which is about WPA um food writing that was all gathered for a big book that never happened because the WPA collapsed uh, with the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And so I've gathered all of this unedited material, and it's like a time capsule. It's, uh, you know, a view of pre-World War II America, which is pretty different from America today.
It sounds like great reading. Mark, thank you so much. We will uh, talk to you next week. I'm Fred Stella. You've been listening to Common Threads, and we've been speaking with Mark Kurlansky, the author of Nonviolence, The History of a Dangerous Idea. Please join us again next week. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we talked with Mark Kurlansky, the author of the 2006 book, Nonviolence, The History of a Dangerous Idea. And uh, Mark Kurlansky is the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of The Last Fishtail, The Fate of the Atlantic and Survival in Gloucester, America's Oldest Fishing Port, and Most Original Town. The Big Oyster, History on the Half Shell, 1968, The Year That Rocked the World, Salt, A World History, Cod, A Biography of the Fish That Changed the World, and this book that we're talking about today, Nonviolence, won the Dayton Literary Peace Prize in 2007. So we welcome once again to Common Threads the very eclectic author, Mark Kurlansky. Hi, Mark. Hi, Fred. Thanks for joining us again. Uh, My we, we had a, a wonderful conversation about the idea of nonviolence. Uh, we talked a bit about the uh, Jewish, Christian, and Hindu understanding of nonviolence. Let's get into Buddhism, because uh, it, it certainly can be argued that the Buddha was another Jesus. Oh, well, actually, Jesus would be another Buddha, because Buddha came <laughs> right. before Jesus. But, but uh, the Buddha uh, found himself born into a religion that uh, he noticed some serious flaws in, and, and uh, while keeping a number of traditions and rituals, uh, not necessarily the rituals, I'd say the traditions, um, he also had his own ideas, uh, and one of them certainly would be Ahimsa. He was very much uh, a peace-loving man and propagated the idea of peaceful coexistence. Uh, can you add on to that? What, what, did he, what was his contribution to the world of nonviolence? Well, it's actually, you know, it, it, going back to 
what we were talking about last week about how religions become violent when they become involved in the state. Uh, Buddhism is is a spectacular example of that because uh, it should have been a very nonviolent religion. Um, but in Japan, it became adopted for warrior cults, which um, you know is a, is a, is a huge contra- contradiction. Uh, something that probably would have surprised Buddha a lot. Um, uh, so it's a, you know it's the same pattern that you see over and over again, um, uh, where religions. Uh, I think most religions can agree that you shouldn't kill other people, and and uh, um, that you shouldn't uh, um, use violence against um, uh, not only against people but against the world. Uh, it's a very interesting thing that's happening these days. Is that um, a, a lot of Christians and uh, E.O. Wilson, the Harvard biologist, has been working on this. A lot of the Christian right has become interested in environmental movements because, um, uh, you know, abusing the environment, abusing the creation, um, is an unchristian way to act. It would also be against Buddha, um, against most religions. Let's talk about some of the practical application here, because, you know, nonviolence is, is, many people will say, well, it's wonderful in theory, but practicing it is, uh, is always a challenge. Now, yeah, but, you know, a question I get when I give talks, I mean, people will often say, but, you know, isn't nonviolence really dangerous? I mean, you can get really hurt doing this. And I always say, why doesn't anybody ever ask that about war? <laughs> Excellent point. Um, I'm I'm glad that you're Jewish for this reason. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> Anybody ever tell you that? I'm glad you're Jewish. <laughs> My wife. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you, you know, the reason I, I, I say this is because I know that uh, Gandhi was criticized and continues to be criticized to this day by the Jewish community because of what he advised Jews to do during World War II, which is basically, yeah. you know, not to, not to put up a violent resistance. And, and so it's been interpreted, well, just, just lie yeah, there but and like, take Like it. a lot of Gandhi, this is just, it, it, it's really kind of misinterpreted. He, you know, Gandhi would never tell people not to put up a resistance. The point Gandhi was making, which I think history has proven to be true is that they could have accomplished more uh, in opposing the Nazis by using uh, nonviolent resistance and non-cooperation than by using violence. I mean, uprisings like the Warsaw Ghetto um, didn't really uh, accomplish much. and the the incidents, the rare incidents of uh, uh, non-cooperative, non-violent resistance, um, actually uh, did fairly well. Yeah, let's talk about those because that never gets a lot of airplay, does it? The the, the idea of non non 
violent resistance in World War II. People tend to forget that there were pockets of that. So give us some examples. Yeah, except that if you, you know, if you go to Yad Vashem in, in, in Israel, which honors people who you know, resisted the Holocaust, you see that most of them resisted it nonviolently. Because violence, people have a tendency to look at this backwards. They, they say, you know, if you're, if, if, if you're opposing somebody who is, who is really violent and really dangerous, then nonviolence isn't possible. But actually, if you're opposing somebody who's ruthless and violent, it's violence that isn't possible. I mean, violence would, would violence against the Nazis was just clear suicide. And, and but people think that nonviolent resistance would be would be suicide as well. Well, except that you know the 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 the, the Holocaust was um, uh, was was operated on on cooperation, and Nazis put a lot of thought into how to get populations and even Jewish communities to cooperate with their with their programs, which is why they never, you know, told the truth about what they were doing, and even you know, tried to make Theresienstadt a kind of a showcase concentration camp, uh, as absurd as that may sound. Um, and uh, where people did not cooperate, uh, uh, you know, like the, um, the last of the uh, Jews in Berlin who were, uh, they were the last because they were in mixed marriages, and uh, everybody said, no, we're we're not doing this, and it, and it didn't happen. And uh, um, uh, Denmark refused to deport their Jews, and very few Jews were deported from Denmark. Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about that specifically, because I know that that is, is a very impressive example. What happened there, and 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 why why Denmark? Uh, was there any uh, any nobility in in the soul of the uh, of the local Dane that that was superior to those of other people in Europe? Oh, I, you know, I don't know if I, I can make that judgment, but, uh, I mean, maybe they were just uh, a little smarter or a little more savvy, or, or maybe they understood the Germans better. I don't know. Um, uh, or maybe it was just a kind of a Nordic pragmatism where they realized that this was the only thing that would work. Um... um or a particular kind of nationalism. It's hard to say, but, you know, they just, um, they said, no, we're not going to go along with this. We're not handing over Jews to you. We're not uh, uh, getting involved in the deportation of our citizens. Um, I mean, one thing you could argue is that there, there wasn't um, widespread anti-Semitism in Denmark. <laughs> you know, they really did think of, Danish Jews as Danes. Yeah, that always helps. You mentioned uh, also in the book that it often helps to have a very charismatic leader in a nonviolent movement. Was there anybody in Denmark? Well, you know, the the the, uh, the, the royal family is 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 credited with this, although. You know, there's a lot of mythology involved in this, but but you know they 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 were seen very much as as leaders and were 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 seen as very important in holding this resistance together. There's this famous story of, you know, when Jews were told to wear yellow stars, that the king and queen appeared on the streets the next day wearing yellow stars. That's a myth that never happened. Um, 
but you know myths are telling in their way and it, it shows how the danish people regarded the royal family you um the foreword to, the, to this book uh, that we're talking about, uh, Nonviolence, the History of a Dangerous Idea, is by uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Uh, first of all, how were you able to get that? That's, that's pretty impressive. That's a, really a, a, a red star on your, on your paper. Um, through the magic of uh, email. You I just... actually never met him. This was all done through email. Um, and the 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 monks in Dharmasala um, are online. <laughs> Not very, surprising. Uh, they're very efficient about about email, and the, you know the manuscript was transmitted that way. And they, you know, I talked to him about it through email, and uh, I never actually met him. It was just a completely email relationship. But uh, um, you know, he like a lot of people. Um, who are dedicated to nonviolence was uh, very happy to have you know people out there in the secular world who embrace this idea. The, this is something that I find quite often. I'm actually giving a talk at a Quaker meeting house in a couple of weeks, and uh, the reason the Quakers, I mean, you know, why do the Quakers need me to talk about nonviolence? Um, because Quakers uh, oppose violence as an article of faith, whereas I argue it as a matter of, of history and secular logic. And uh, they find this very interesting that, you know, the, this, the, the, the secular world would support their religious world. Getting back to the Dalai Lama for just a minute, uh, in the past couple of months, he's expressed some real concern and and disappointment. One can almost feel the morale dipping a little bit because of the the uh, PRC's adamant stand that they will not talk to him and they want to keep things status quo. Do you have any words of optimism, or do you, do you see that scene any differently than perhaps the rest of us do? Well, um... You know, this gets back to what I was saying before. It's the only option they have. There, there, there is no way that a violent Tibetan resistance movement would get anywhere against the Chinese. Um, uh, it, it would be a huge mistake, and I think that's pretty clear to most people. Um, so they really have no other choice. Um, uh, you know, the reason... Um, that they haven't gotten the results that they might have hoped for uh, is, you know, it's, it's partly that this kind of thing takes a lot of patience and a lot of time, and, you know, I, I think in time, if they stick to it, they will, just like I think in time the the monks in Burma will, will um, succeed. Uh, but it, it's, you know, it, 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 it's more than, it, it has to be more than, talking about peace and nonviolence it has to be real non-cooperation you, you you cannot govern a people that refuses to be governed and that is the um, the essential route to nonviolent resistance you just don't cooperate if you're just joining us you're listening to common threads here on WGVU radio 
I'm Fred Stella, and joining me today is Mark Kurlansky. He's the author of Nonviolence, The History of a Dangerous Idea. You know, after um, the Soviets invaded Czechoslovakia in 1968, um, the Czechs, Alexander Dubček, who was the head of Czechoslovakia at the time, very wisely decided not to make any military attempt to uh, stop the invasion. Uh, Czechoslovakia probably had the best military in the Warsaw Pact that they couldn't would have been a bloodbath to stand up to the entire Warsaw Pact. Um, and uh, young people, people who were involved in the Prague Spring and this new movement in Czechoslovakia got together and said, talked about, you know, wh what can we do? And what a lot of them concluded, particularly uh, the group around Václav Havel, was uh, let's just not cooperate. Let's not cooperate with the Soviet state. And when the Soviet Union uh, fell apart, a lot of people were surprised, and people talked about how quickly this had happened. But these people had been doing this for 20 years. Um, and, uh, you know, 20 years is a, is, is a quick victory in a nonviolent struggle. I would imagine. And how about Poland? Um, well, Poland also. I, I mean, Poland, um, you know, Poland started in, also in 68 with a, um, a student movement and a movement of kind of intellectuals around the universities. And uh, it failed. And it largely failed because they were alone. And so they spent a lot of time trying to figure out how they could bring in other groups, particularly workers. Um, and, um, um, you know, solidarity in the movement in the Gdansk shipyards, uh, you know, is often seen as the beginning of this movement. But it wasn't the beginning of this movement. The beginning of this movement was the the intellectuals in in, in 68 who, who then brought in the the worker movement and you you have to you have to pull in a pretty diverse group in in society to uh to to have an impact and what would you, you start with you start with a small marginal group and you spread out what would you say the the role of religion was as opposed to the role of of uh, secular uh, segments of society uh, in in the Soviet Union, in in the in the Warsaw Pact, uh, I, I mean, a lot of people put uh, the late Pope John Paul II uh, on the pedestal, saying that you know he was one of the main reasons that that the Soviet Union fell, and uh, Poland was liberated. Uh, would you would you agree with that, or would you say that it was th there was a lot of work <laughs> being also, done prior to? You could also argue that he was one of the. The, the the main reasons why anybody liked communism in the first place. <laughs> I mean, the the uh, the Polish Catholic Church had a history of, uh, of of repression and violent repression and anti-Semitism and um, uh, and the the the, the movement um, against the Soviet Union did bring in the Catholic Church and and and. And they were very helpful, and uh, you know he was helpful 
you know, sort of a, as a symbol more than anything that that he actually did. But the Catholic Church in Poland did uh, do things and 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 work with this movement. Um, but you know, since the fall of of, of communism, the the the, uh, the Cardinal Glemp and various you know parts of the right wing Catholic Church have sort of reminded people <laughs> what, uh, why communism had been appealing in the first place because you know they, they didn't want the repression of the church either and and how about um, I noticed that historians historians are taking a second look at uh, Ronald Reagan's um, contribution to the fall of the Soviet Union in and may I say one of those people the late uh, president Gerald Ford who hails from our neck of the woods who claims that uh, Ronald Reagan got way too much credit for that? Do you have any thoughts well, on I, that? I would completely agree with that. I mean, the, the the historic record is pretty clear that you know Reagan and the U.S. government had no clue of what was going on and was completely caught by surprise. And and it, when you when you look at these people, uh, you know, in Eastern Europe and Poland and Czechoslovakia and other places that, you know courageously worked at this stuff at great sacrifice to their personal lives for decades and then to say it was done by Ronald Reagan is is, is such an insult to them um, I, I, I don't think Reagan or the US government had anything to do with it at all not even the 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 personal friendship that he developed with Gor- Gorbachev I mean that you don't think that that helped well, I mean that, that that developed because you know Gorbachev was doing these things. Uh, Gorbachev wasn't doing these things to please Ronald Reagan. Gorbachev was doing these things because uh, he didn't see any other viable course. You know, uh, Gorbachev was one of the Soviet officials who was sent to Czechoslovakia after the invasion, and he was shocked by the attitude that the Czechs now had towards the Soviets. Uh, you know, the Soviets had liberated Czechoslovakia and uh, in World War II, and they, the, they were always seen as the heroes and the liberators against the, the evil people, the Germans. And, you know, after the Soviet invasion, uh, Gorbachev went there and discovered that, you know, Soviets were being treated like they were Germans. Uh, and, and, and he wrote later about how, you know, he realized this was the beginning of the end. Gorbachev had a very astute sense of history. So, Mark, uh, as we come down to the wire on this program, uh, why don't we talk somewhat about the, the major concern of so many people in the Western world, and that is militant Islam. Uh, if, if you were an advisor to the president right now, what what might you put in his ear to it, to encourage a rapprochement or, or or some some semblance of of civil dialogue? Um, if if you look at uh, violent radical Islam, which uh, completely ignores the teachings of Islam and 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 perverts the word jihad, which was about a personal struggle towards God, and, uh, you know, just completely ignores the Quran, um, which writes about uh, against martyrdom and uh, against suicide, uh, that people who commit suicide don't 
qualify for martyrdom. And I, I mean, the, the Islamic religion is in complete contradiction with uh, these groups. Um, and how are these groups able to use Islam to uh, recruit all of these people? Uh, I think that one of the reasons is that they have uh, um, portrayed the United States and the West as this kind of mythological ogre, and uh, that the uh, the U.S. has done everything they possibly could to fulfill that vision uh, of, of of who we are, and that the 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 way to undermine and dismantle radical uh, violent Islam uh, would be for the U.S. to act in another way. Could you give some examples? Um, well, stop killing people in Iraq and Afghanistan would be uh, the, the first thing. Uh, um, we, did, we just are, are not uh, doing, you know, let's just remove moral issues and just in terms of pra pragmatic uh, um, statecraft. Uh, um, we we're not doing the United States any good to be um, uh, bombing and shelling uh, uh, villages and, and killing uh, killing civilians and 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 even you know having an armed and dangerous military presence on uh, uh, Islamic soil. Uh, um, we we have to. Uh, um, approach the Middle East in a, in a completely other way and play a different part. And what do you see right now? Do, do you see anything that would make you optimistic in the uh, conflict between the Palestinians and the Jews? Uh, do, do you see a strong nonviolent movement? I, I see pockets of it, but I don't know if it's translating into the, the greater culture of, of either yeah, people. I, I see pockets of it. There are certainly... You know, it's easier to see in, in Israel because it's a much more open society, and there certainly are movements and groups in Israel that uh, oppose the, the militarism and brutality of the Israeli government. Um, there are also people like that among the Palestinians. Um, uh, I meet people like that all the time, but... Uh, um, it's a dangerous position to take, um, and it's, it certainly isn't widespread on, uh, on either side. Um, I mean, what they're doing just isn't working. What the Palestinians are doing isn't working, and what the Israelis are doing isn't working. And, and you would think they would all be saying, there's something really wrong with our leadership. <laughs> this isn't working. Um, but... Uh, I don't know. I, 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 I don't see that many glimmers of hope, you know, just these few uh, individuals and, 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 and small groups. I mean, when you, when you see Israeli politicians uh, campaigning an election on taking a harder line against the Palestinians when they've just slaughtered 1,500 of them in Gaza, uh, you, you have to wonder what they're, what they're seeing, what their vision is. Um, uh, I, I think that one of the great problems in the Middle East is that you have people who see 
what's wrong with Israel, and you have people who see what's wrong with, you know, Hamas and the Fatah and other Palestinian groups. Um, but you have very few people who saying, who are saying, you know, they're all going about this the wrong way, all of them. Um, uh, to have credibility denouncing the Israeli invasion of uh, Gaza, uh, you have to have also denounced the Palestinian shelling of civilian sites in Israel. Uh, there's, you know, in the world, there's very few people who are, and, and very few powers who are really looking at this in a balanced way. And I think if you looked at it in a balanced way, you'd be highly critical of both sides. I, I hear that a lot. Mark, we are out of time for this week's program, but I really appreciate your insights, and thank you so much for joining us today and sharing about, about the book. Well, it's a pleasure talking to you, Fred. We've been talking with Mark Kurlansky. He is the author of Nonviolence, The History of a Dangerous Idea. And uh, I want to thank Lynn Hammer, who is more than partially responsible for this show happening. I'm Fred Stella. You're listening to Common Threads. Please join us again next week on WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.